0: You got a fan or something going make sure you don't die of heat.
1: Oh, no, the fan is definitely on. That was going to be a non-negotiable. So if folks is listening to it and they like, dang, it kind of sound like a fan is on, a fan is on to prevent death.
0: Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I'm happy to record already started because that was something I was going to for sure mention when I started the podcast. I was like, yo, if y'all hear if y'all listening and y'all like, dang, they got this fan on in the background. Yes, we do. It is hot. <laughs> And I'll be damned if we do this podcast burning up. Just, nah, y'all going to hear some fan in the background.
1: Look, I was almost, I was getting my hairy twisted yesterday. No, and this is, this is no, no cap. I really almost passed out, bro. I really almost passed out. Like I got, I was, I was like, my, my forehead got high and I was like, huh, kind of, kind of feeling a little lightheaded here. Uh, like a. I need some water. (laughs) I really almost passed out. I was like, "Oh my god!" Had to get that fan on, bro. This is some serious heat, man.
0: It's a little too serious a heat, though. Like, like it got without central air, though.
1: Like, I mean, if we had central air that could, you know, circulate air, I feel like it wouldn't be as bad know what i'm saying but it's just that lack of being able to circulate air it's just kinda, it's criminal it's, it is they should have canceled schools today i'll be honest
0: yeah you you are right um let's go ahead and get into it welcome <laughs> welcome to natural nonsense up, uh, it is it is your host kyler nathan and andre thompson reporting live from from hell with this heat. <laughs> <laughs> from I'm the sorry. devil
1: live from the devil's crockpot
0: oh crockpot's a good one because man it'd be hot in a crockpot once it really gets to start cooking and san diego really got us in a crockpot right now and the lid is on and it's on high uh but this week's episode as promised last time we gave you all the politics to the animal kingdom uh, this time, I'm going to call it ISO a little bit, and we're going we to talk a little bit about cognitive science, thinking like an animal, thinking about thinking. It's going to be a lot of thinking, so I hope you got your thinking caps on, pun intended.
1: And, and get your get your pens out, too.
0: Get your pens out, take notes. We, we want you all to lead this episode with some knowledge um, and just get your brains thinking. I think that, I don't know, I'll be thinking a lot. I'm a, I identify as an overthinker in case the listeners don't know. And I got a lot to say also, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, But first things first, I had a little intro question, uh, sticking with the animal theme. Last week, we had the conversation about anacondas and alligators, which the polls that I put up, I was meaning to look up the final stats, but it was a lot more even than I expected. I think a lot of people really was just taking a surface level of like anaconda and alligators. And a lot of people picked the anaconda.
1: <laughs> I, I, hey, we can only do so much to let people know what the correct choice would be. but hey,
0: hey, uh, I'm with it. But today's question, if you could safely, and that is a key operative word here, like safely, if you could safely hang out with one type of animal for a day, which animal would you pick and why? And I'm gonna let you go first.
1: Um, if I could safely chill with an animal for a day, it would probably be a giant squid. Because I just want to know where they're going. Like, where do y'all be? We only have knowledge of the ones that we've seen. So, So there's possibly giant squid that are like, I don't know, how how big? We don't know, right? Um, and I would just wanna know what they, be, what they be doing all day. Like, what is in the life of a giant squid? Like we, the thing of the deep ocean is just really, really brings a lot of curiosity because it's just like, how else would you know? Like, it's not like on the, uh, like I guess for a lot of animal documentaries, and even the ones that are based in the ocean they have to use these like super expensive submarine camera type things and even then they don't really be catching them in the act you know what i'm saying like they they, them submarines ain't really uh like they don't really blend in that much they just real loud probably got a bunch of lights so I think it only attracts a certain type of creature up to the thing. So like, I would just want to know what giant squids be on. That's that's what I would, a day though is wild. But I'm sure that, (laughs) like I might want to get tea with my boy, but I don't know if we go (laughs) like the whole day I'm down for the giant squid, that's, that's wild. But I think I would want to kick it with a giant squid. What about you?
0: I understand not wanting to hang out with the giant squid for a full day because you know, like the be them days you're hanging out with your homie, and you like, yeah, we could kick it for the day. Then like two p.m. hit, it's like, ah, right, what you about to be on, bro? <laughs> yeah. Like... hitting
1: the squid of like, hey, uh, what you about to do after this? <laughs> you got, some, you got something to do in the ocean after
0: this? Yeah, because and... uh, I'm I'm a, I'm ahead to the surface. Like it, this was cool though. Like it, it was cool um but i think that originally i was thinking of like a deep sea fish like i was thinking about an angler fish at first because like what the hell y'all doing all the way down there it is dark as hell i know you got this little light on your forehead but what y'all be on you
1: know like what does a normal day look like
0: but rather than spend a day with a fish i had to go with the arctic wolf i want to be a part of the pack for a day see what the conversation is like what the hunting strategy is and really see just how, like, cunning that they really be. Like, like hey, you see that moose over there? We all, like, y'all going to go over there, y'all going to go over there. Because, like I said, it's safely out. So, like, I'm going to be safe and whatnot. But I'm really trying to see how they strategize, how they get down, what they talking about. I think I'm going to hang out with the Arctic Wolves. And also just to be in the Arctic safely, like, just to see yeah. what's going on. Like, I think it would be interesting.
1: Yeah, like, I, I honestly see where you're coming from because – wow is the arctic dangerous (laughs) life is precarious (laughs) a lot more i'd even say even more than in the desert because like i feel like there's some similarities but you know it can be hot but if it's really too cold we don't got nothing for that We got nothing for that
0: nothing at all And then, like, just whatever other Arctic life might be out there, like, I need the safety guarantee because if it's just hanging, I'm not just about to be out in the Arctic and see a polar bear because then I'm just dead. (laughs) Yeah, by the time you saw that bear,
1: even a grizzly bear, any bear, honestly, because they're hungry in the Arctic. as, As we know, there's not a lot of food for them up there right now. So definitely would look great on the menu for them.
0: Quick tangent since I brought up polar bears. The audacity of them to have a polar bear in this heat in San Diego at the zoo. The audacity.
1: Hey, hey, they better put my, you remember, you know my boy, uh, I think it's on the like icy cup, the polar bear with the shades. Mm -hmm. They need to put that polar bear just in a giant tub of ice and just keep bread air because (laughs) what is going on? There's no way bread's comfortable.
0: No way. What at all? no way at all um but just a really quick icebreaker today uh, i guess that pound wasn't intended but it It definitely worked um but yeah as always let us know y'all's thoughts y'all's voice memos a hyphy doc we, we ain't heard from the hyphy doc in a minute we need a we need a good hyphy doc voice memo from this one um but let us know what type of animal y'all want to kick it with for a day but to get into the topic of the day, uh, as I mentioned, it's a little bit, a lot of bit. We'll see how much I'll start talking about cognitive science. Uh, We're going to touch on a lot of different topics. Uh, for those of y'all who don't know, uh, cognitive science is the science of the mind. It's like a sandwich between psychology and neuroscience. Uh, so regardless of where you're studying cognitive science, it will be anywhere on that spectrum from a bunch of psychology to a bunch of neuroscience. Uh, when i did my undergrad major my major was closer uh closely modeled after the more psychology side of the spectrum but we did learn a lot about neuroscience and just wanted to kind of start the dialogue just talking about some of the things that we would talk about in class especially as it relates to cognition in the wild uh, this is going to be very similar to the poli episode defining concepts talking about topics and getting andre's perspective because he did not study cognitive science even though we did have plenty of conversations about it in undergrad you're not a sure. coxide expert. No,
1: not at not
0: one bit. But I'm I, know to ha- I about to say, I know you got the pen and the paper ready. So uh we gonna we're gonna hop right <laughs> into it. Uh but first things first, um, a lot of people don't know this, but UC San Diego is really like a hotspot for cognitive science. They had the first cognitive science department in the world, and one of their researchers, Edwin Hutchins, is like a very big pillar in the cognitive science world of science and research. And he wrote this book called Cognition in the Wild, which was based off of his theory of distributed cognition. And essentially what Edwin Hutch's book is about, he analyzes a naval ship and just how much thought and distributed thinking takes place on a Navy ship to make that ship function. Like all the different people on board, Uh, Specifically, I think he was focused like in the command center of it and like what information is being shared, who knows this information, how does this information all play a role in the Navy ship being able to navigate where it's going. And so, distributed cognition as a concept is a collection of individuals and artifacts and their relations to each other in a particular work practice, as well as a computational perspective towards goal based activity systems. And this is kind of going to be the basis of the conversation overall today because when you look at nature when you look at the animal kingdom it's really a system of people of individuals of objects in nature that are all contributing to one specific goal uh even when you look at like us and our work like as much work and knowledge is at our place of work like at uc san diego uh, there's so many people doing research and so many things and so many people that contribute To the function of the university to serve its students. Uh, All that goes into like bringing in a new class of students. Distributed cognition is kind of a theory that is an umbrella for all that. So, before I even get into the weeds, what are your thoughts on just like distributed cognition in general as like a concept?
1: I mean, from how it's being described, I think it just relates all the way back to just like. Kind of when we' having conversations about why community care is important because um, you know I've, I've said this a lot, but people have to have have like examples of what to follow or have like models of what to follow or um, and see it tangibly in real life. And I think one of the one of the biggest drawbacks, to the pandemic amongst the um, genocidal policies of the United States. It was the inability of humans to breathe in that kind of distributed uh, cognitive, distributive cognition type of way of being able to come together and process something so large of a kind of, such a large thought, I guess, like there's, I feel like in all of my years of being alive, there's been nothing that's been that big of an issue to where, you know, compared it to maybe like World War II or like, you know, I feel like, like, of course, wars and stuff, but I think just where every single person on the globe had like a mutual concern. hmm And then we also weren't, because of the nature of it, we weren't able to come together to start that cognition. And that's how you get, there's 5G in the mass. (laughs) God. I want all of those people that said that to stand to the front and say it with their chest in 2022. Because that was one of the wildest times. The diagrams alone.
0: But, oh my or was it a wild time
1: <laughs> but yeah that's what I think that's what I think it just reminds me of just how how we do that a lot for our jobs but we don't do that a lot on a community level or like interpersonally and at least like in my family I think it's not something that we are able to do because a of number of factors but just something that um that I see
0: Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad you brought up the COVID-19 pandemic, because that's kind of what sparked this first kind of conversation piece. But I wanted to talk about the importance of shared knowledge for communal survival. And one of the things that came up in my little rabbit hole I went through on cognitive science over the weekend, uh, but there was this researcher who was studying packs of wolves at Yellowstone National Park and based off of their research it was only around like 16 or i guess only 16 packs of wolves is kind of a weird thing to say but uh it is a
1: small sample size
0: yeah it's a small sample size whenever i'm bringing out data i like to acknowledge small sample sizes but of the wolf packs that they studied, packs that had at least one elder survived against other wolf packs at a rate 2.5 times higher meaning that if a pack of wolves had just one wolf that was older than the rest of the wolves in the pack versus a younger pack who doesn't have that elder in the pack they if the packs were to combat against each other the pack with the elder is more likely to survive that attack in addition when it comes to we talked about matriarchal communities uh, in the last episode the oldest matriarch in an elephant herd is the one who's able to lead them to water in times of drought because they've experienced so much life as we know like elephants have long memories long lifespans And they know like where water can be found. So they'll be able to share that knowledge with the rest of the herd to lead them to where they need to be in a time of drought. And this made me think of the COVID-19 pandemic because especially at the onset of the pandemic, there was this narrative going around that it's like, oh, well, it's only old people that are dying, which is just an insane thing to say. Like only anybody is dying is an insane thing to say. But speaking of the pandemic and how it's only impacting our elders was something that was just like an asinine to me because what do you mean only old people are dying we should be like even more concerned if only old people are dying because there's so much knowledge that intentionally needs to get passed down from generation to generation and i think the pandemic highlighted just a lack of concern we have for some elders and today's time as well as just how inaccessible the world is for our elder communities like whether it's scanning qr codes at restaurants to view menus or only being able to engage with stuff online so uh with these two like animal examples and the COVID 19 pandemic i just wanted to get your thoughts on how like shared knowledge has changed over time and how the pandemic kind of brought to light a lot of people's insane feelings about like the older generations
1: yeah this is this is to do it right here so basically like what the first thing that I thought of was my grandma because she has a garden back back home with all types of vegetables plants flowers banana trees all type of stuff she got in her garden and she has this kind of area with flowers and they're all different kinds of flowers she planted and in the right part part of the time in like the spring and the summer only certain butterflies go to those flowers and so when you in her backyard it's bees around but different kinds of bees bumblebees honeybees um, different types of butterflies and it looks fake like it, it it legit looks fake like it looks like something out of Alice in Wonderland but it's in the middle of my grandma's backyard but she just has a knowledge of the plants and I asked her, I'm like, hey, grandma, like, whoa, you got this written down anywhere? And she was like, no, nah, I just noticed. <laughs> and I'm just like, yo, we're gonna have to write this down because and she knows how to make wine um from fruit and stuff like that. I made some wine with her. Um, but that's where that shared knowledge comes in. I be willing to go out there in the dirt. I'd be willing to go cut up the strawberries and make the wine and stuff and do all the hard work, lifting this and doing that. And I think that's that's that gap that I think generationally oppressors have found a way to create schisms between our generations. Like they label people boomers and then they label people generation X and then millennials and then generation Z. Only... (laughs) <laughs> the only label that matter is poor or right. black or and add 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 different identifier from because a lot of those experiences, yes, they're valid, but they're so surface level that it don't actually mean anything. Like, so what if somebody in Gen Z or is into TikTok and they record t- what is the material consequence of that? Like I do not care like honestly i'll be caring that gen z don't got no food <laughs> or generation uh, or the boomers uh um they getting tickets from the city because it ain't nobody there to cut their grass and they they don't have the they don't have the ability to go out there and cut their grass but they getting fines by the city because they grass too high that's the type i think that's where that knowledge part starts to they created schisms on purpose to keep mm-hmm. us unable to progress and we need all ages involved, all knowledge of all parts. Because, like, my baby sister, she she grew up on TikTok. That's all. She ain't had no MySpace. She ain't had nothing like that. So, if it's something a TikTok, she know she knows some stuff. She she knows some stuff on TikTok you now, and it's letting people be in that position and having a role. And I think that's what's a big failure right now. Is nobody like people's roles is all based off of like identity markers and not how they relate to a community like Mm -hmm. and i think you know that the old people are only the old people are dying like that's just such a heavy statement because it's like for one it's not true (laughs) but (laughs) like but for two like the idea that you know people are discardable just because they become a certain age is really violent to me and I it, think, it especially when people talk about politicians, like, man, they need to get these old-ass politicians out of here. bro. fascism don't have no age limit or age requirement. You can be a right. fascist as early as possible, and that's their goal. And we seeing it now. All of these, rep- all these people that's getting voted in the office, they, they was young when, like, they they're younger than when Martin Luther King passed away. So when people are just so attached to age, meaning um, lack of knowledge, it's really mm-hmm. strange to me. Cause I look at a lot of my elders as people that I I get information from. Like I be if I got a question, I call my mom or I call my grandma or I, I look to elders to guide. And it's it's not accepting everything at face value because hey, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that now. Like I, I'll be messed up, but. I think just being in that place of like looking at elders, looking at how everybody has a role and seeing how that's such a distant part of my experience being away from my family, because I think that's the thing that makes it hardest. Because like you're saying, like they don't be catching up on Instagram. I'll be sending my grandma videos though. Like (laughs) I'll be downloading videos and stuff off my story and I'll, I'll text them to my grandma. And, you know, but that's another thing of why sometimes it's weird when people be saying happy birthday today to somebody and they post it on Instagram. Like, I mean, they ain't got no IG. So like, are you gonna send the picture to them? Or like, what what is this engagement for? Like, do you want us to tell them happy birthday? But it's just something that I think is interesting of just that those schisms that oppressors create between the different, um, ages and the different generations in order to keep us from connecting because it's a lot of stuff, especially with plants and that I've learned from my grandma that don't got nothing and it's not going to be in no book. She's like, yeah, um, you know how to, when you're supposed to water a pot, if if you try to move it and it move a lot, then it's it needs some water. If it don't, then don't water. It.
0: Yeah. Or
1: if you rub the leaves of this plant, this is how you know how I smell, or if you rub the leaves, it is, this is how you know it's this, or it's just little things like that, that, you know, I think that's why I'm really big and wanting to farm and wanting to get back into doing that because the average age of a farmer, bro, is 56. Wow, I know that. The average age. So that's even a part of the eldership part right there of just oh that's what old people do and then I see so many it's been so many black farms that's lost their farms because they had people that's you know young willing to take on that mantle of you know keeping those things going and I think the only uh, part of that shared knowledge is sharing food so that's why well, I'm really big and wanted to get involved with that because there's a knowledge there that we're gonna need because this Earth is dying. Yeah, and we're gonna need this knowledge if we're gonna eat, like, period. I- I'm really sure of that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. um And I want to touch on a couple of things that you said because uh kind of like how like our grandparents aren't necessarily seeing what's on Instagram. They also when they go when my grandma going to make her sweet potato pie, she ain't going on YouTube to search. Uh, best sweet potato pie recipe she know the ingredients that she used she know that they work she needs a specific brand it got to come in the carton not the can you blend it till it's a certain consistency you could just tell they give you a very specific like yeah it got to be the orange color of this specific thing you cook it until you feel like it's ready and those are the types of things that you just know based off experience and in uh hutchins cognition in the wild some of that was talking about like those who had like higher rankings on ship, they've been in these situations a number of times before so they have knowledge across time across generations and they know how to convey that information and when information is important and when is that information important and then going to the uh back to the wolf example of survival with only one more elder in the pack I can't tell you how differently I would navigate the city of Los Angeles, California, if it wasn't for the old heads saying where to be, where not to be, what colors to wear, what colors not to wear, because I'm sure somebody's created some type of internet like blog on what colors to wear, where in neighborhoods, but I appreciate that knowledge from my elders who's like, oh, you're going over on so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, oh, you might want to change shirts, noted, thank you, (laughs) because I'm not Googling that.
1: Yeah, and I think what you're talking about too is just the intimacy of the knowledge. Like, yeah. because I care about you, I'm sharing knowledge with you. And we're in this time where people are proudly stating they don't read.
0: <laughs> with their chest, I'll read books.
1: But you're supposed to be but you but people think they can oh I'm, I'm i need to be in this debate i need to go back and forth someone but i'm not even gonna commit to the intimacy of learning and learning that learning this in order to help the next person next to me and not necessarily for my own benefit because then you ask somebody what they read oh yeah I, I i'm about to get into insert capitalist venture but it's not like a book you know and I, and, you know, that's that's a path for everybody. But I just think when it comes to knowledge and of our people, especially, like I know you got that coming back home, like I'm you Malcolm X now, or and it's and it's just like, wow, that's doing Malcolm X such a disservice. I am not that lit. Like first off, like
0: not you did not at all.
1: you did not read that
0: book because I who man i am nowhere near i'm scary like
1: i i'm giving you that energy really i don't even like
0: talking to people i ain't malcolm x
1: oh but it's just even that like approach to knowledge itself is like oh wow you're you're but it's a it's it's a truth in it though because they know that having knowledge is a source of power and it is a source that you can wield at at will and I just want for people, especially like going, going to your points about looking at the elders and how they help groups survive. That's why it's so important for us to break down those schisms and see like, how can we meet across lines? And for for, for me and my family, it's food and it's, it's different things like that because it's the only time that you know everybody can agree yo that macaroni and cheese wasn't it who made that <laughs> we all know who made that next time for shared knowledge they are not allowed to make the macaroni and cheese
0: you make I'm sure so- they know like oh we got we got mac and cheese you can bring something else yeah some we, ice
1: yeah we need we definitely need drinks so you you're on drinks until further notice. That, but i think that's necessary because that makes the whole time more enjoyable for everybody but i think on a bigger scale and a more macro scale, like how how do we come together for our elders and make sure that they're protected and feel safe, but also being an open reception for their knowledge? Because I think sometimes I noticed it a lot because maybe I'm from the South, so elders have a much bigger position, I would say, than more, um, I guess more, uh, populated cities and stuff mm-hmm. like that, there's just an innate level of, like, just overall strong-willed power that whoever the elder is get a say, so nah, we ain't putting barbecue on the ribs. Like, yo, you don't even got teeth. Like, how do you get to make a decision on on the barbecue on the ribs? But, but, but no matter who, hey, we ain't putting barbecue on the ribs now. So I'm, we ain't doing it. But I think we need more of that in our society. We need more uh, and reel in this kind of like ego-driven knowledge where it's like, let me get in this eco-chamber of people who also agree with me and let that be my thing versus like someone who has experienced more and has more to teach, you know? That's just yeah. what I think. Because there's too many experts that ain't been under no tutelage. Like... Used to have to be like a, a, like if you're a stone maker or a sword maker or some shit, you had to like apprentice. Like you had to, you had to for a few years. You had to work up under somebody.
0: You got to go through the ropes.
1: Yeah, and I don't think enough folks is going through the ropes, and then life is smacking them like like shit across the face, like like a big ass fish. I got smacked like that, and I don't. I wouldn't say that I was necessarily averse to getting the knowledge. I think those schisms just kind of in the way sometimes, but there's a lot that I wish I could have just been under the tutelage. And and that's kind of what undergrad, I mean, that's kind of what these things are. But again, it's for the purposes of furthering the capitalist mission and not furthering our development and growth as people.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think it's really important for people to use the platforms that they have and connect with people in the way they wanted to connect. Uh, That's kind of why I was excited to be able to talk about like poli-sci and cogsci on a podcast, because am I really going to take the time to sit and explain cognitive science to everybody I come across in my neighborhood? No. I, I literally do not have time. And I, quite frankly, that doesn't sound like a fun use of my time. But to be able to point people to, like, yeah, this is a structured conversation that I was having, talking about some of these things that you wanted to know about, that's a little bit more digestible way to talk about it. Because as important as it is to receive and learn from our elders, I think it's also important for us to share our knowledge up the totem pole of generations, too, yeah. because we have access to different knowledge, different perspectives. And I don't think that, and this is something that I'll probably get into a little bit more in the second part of the episode, but I don't think you can ever fully say you're knowledgeable about something until you also hear like how other perspectives and environments and experiences view that knowledge, because I can know all I want about cognitive science and how it pertains to my lived experiences, but how this plays to somebody who grew up in LA in the fifties and sixties. Might be completely different, and they have different knowledge—not necessarily saying correct or incorrect, but different knowledge that should help better inform how what I've learned has an impact on the world. Because you brought up like serving so the capitalist engine, Edwin Hutchins ain't—he ain't black. <laughs> like there's, there's so much that we learn from non-black perspectives, non-black people that it's important to take what you learn and see how that applies to the community that you come from.
1: Okay. For sure, and I think that's a very big part of the shared knowledge because there's so many scientists, astronomers, uh, engineers. Man, how many engineers I know that with some duct tape and can fix something on a car? That's engineering. Yeah, but it doesn't engineering get by a different validity. name. It doesn't get the validity because um, once the distributed cognition of blackness and black people is often mined and siphoned but it's
0: not valued. Yeah, that's real. Cause yeah, we could probably have a whole episode on like hood engineering and like, cause it just comes from a place of having to make things happen and get things done. But we are going, I commit to saving that for another episode. I do want to transition to talk a little bit about social cognition and body language. So cognition in general is just kind of like related to the mind processes. So social cognition is looking at how, thinking and thinking about thinking applies in social situations and one of the ways that social cognition comes up a lot is in body language and social cues i wanted to specifically talk about body language though because one of the more interesting studies that i'll never forget from undergrad is about the waggle dance in bees and for those of y'all who have not heard about the bees waggle dance i forget if it's a specific species of bees or not but essentially there's a type of bees that when they're the hives going out to look for flowers and nectar and whatnot they're going out in a number of different directions to once again distribute the cognition because bees don't have they don't have like cell phones so where they can see like where the hot spots are to find nectar But what they do is they go out in a number of different locations and when the bees find something, they come back to the hive and they do this little waggle dance, which is a series of body movements in a particular direction for a specific length of time that lets the hive know where the flowers that they found are, where they can find a source of nectar. And so what the waggle dance is, they're wiggling in the direction of the source in relation to where the sun is. So if the sun's like due north on the horizon and the flowers are east, the waggle dance will be like east of the sun. So they know that you fly in this direction to get to the source. And then how long they do the dance for is relatively how far away the source is. So they do all that just in like a two to five second dance, but that's sharing so much knowledge within the hive. And that adds on shared knowledge and distributed cognition because this is just ingrained in bees to know like, what this waggle dance is how to do it and that's a way that they communicate whereas we only really think of the sound bees make like the buzzing they make but this dance is an inaudible way that they communicate with each other to serve a vital function of the hive um so i wanted to just get your thoughts on that briefly like have you heard of the waggle dance before like is there like stuff that you form connections with like you be waggle dancing i
1: think we all be waggle dancing Nah, i've i've heard of um the way scout bees um are how they inform the hive with information um like of basically where to like where is a good place to put the hive like whenever they're um what is it called whenever they're not hiving but they're ah, it's, it's like a word for it but yeah. it's basically like where they start to um, swarm, when bees swarm, basically when they're swarming, it means they're looking for a new hive. And so I know that they had the communication that way, but I didn't know about the waggle bits and like how the information is traveled that way. Um, I think the first thing that it made me think of was Sankofa, like the yeah. Sankofa bird. And for the listeners, Uh, if you don't know what Sankofa means um, it's an African word from the Akan tribe in in Ghana and the symbol basically means it is not taboo to fetch what is at risk of being left behind Um, and to me Sankofa was a huge part of my experience in learning and sharing knowledge of basically like reaching like For our waggle dance, I guess, it was our parents telling us like, yo, you gotta go to college somewhere. You gotta go get the knowledge from somewhere. And that's gonna innately like better us as people. And this goes back to, um, I would say Reconstruction, because the way that, uh, the way that slavery, quote unquote, well I'll say chattel slavery ended. Um, it left people with very little skills to operate freely in a truer sense because of the lack of knowledge. Because it's not like you know some piece of paper come down and then suddenly all of the inequities are fixed. People don't have the ability to read now. So how are they supposed to now be free to function mm-hmm. in the society? If they can't read this the street signs or they can't participate in voting or they can't um so I think that's a big part of why education is so important. And I know people say it's a scam or it's this or it's that, but it's really the the cost is is um being inflated and it's it's being gouged, but knowledge itself isn't a scam. Like going to college isn't a scam. And I think this showing the showing the example of just the waggle dance with the bees and how it's so important for the information to get back. And I think that's what made me remind to reminded me of Sankofa. Yeah,
0: that's, that's a good that's a good analogy there. Um, The other thing I wanted to bring up with regards to body language and social cognition, because this is something that I think did some numbers. uh, It was a TED talk by Amy Cuddy some years ago about power poses. And for those of y'all who haven't seen the power pose TED talk, it's essentially a series of like, or the TED talk is a conversation about how you can kind of trick your brain into giving yourself more confidence by how you're posturing, how you're posing. Uh, So they were like instructing on like to do like these power poses before interview or before you're doing something that makes you nervous. Uh, Essentially make yourself like bigger in a more confident stance. And some cognitive science or psychology research has disproved this theory a bit. uh, Just in that there's no like it's kind of like a placebo effect. Like nothing's really necessarily happening if you're posing like this before a big meeting, like you're not going to magically turn into Superman. However, I think that there's more to it than just being a black and white yes or no, because one, I think power poses in general are kind of modeled after how white men hold themselves in spaces and the, yeah, the power that they, how they are showing their power in spaces. Um, so which the is probably, white
1: part was 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 uh silent. It was in parentheses, it was just silent. <laughs> the white, white power white poses. <laughs> Something to think about.
0: Yeah, just a lot of overseer under.
1: energy there.
0: There's a lot of overseer energy because it's like, oh, like, make yourself the biggest person in the room, like make sure you really portray your white male privilege, essentially is what the power poses were saying. And some people believe the power poses because they tried it and it worked. And what I wanted to bring this up for is just the power that mind and body can have in unison with each other, because even though power poses are flawed as an idea, it can still be true that giving yourself these bodily poses can lead to some additional confidence, but I think it's more so unpacking that and understanding why, like, what is this doing for your brain? Uh, Were you slouched over because you are naturally like feeling defensive or feeling uneasy about what you're about to do? Then yeah, maybe change your posture can push you in a better mindset, but just thinking about what does that mean for people and the different identities that they have, because, We live in a fucked up society, so you like a Black woman or a Black trans person can't just go into a meeting and stand like this and automatically receive additional respect or more people listening to them. There's more that goes into that. Um, So I think just bringing that up to like say be critical about some of the research that we see too with regards to psychological effects and what these different things have in our mind because honestly, as someone who actually was in the classroom taking the test and whatnot, a lot of education is a guesswork people get a lot of research done and they'd be like yeah i I think that's about right and you take the test and you're essentially seeing whether or not you remember to agree with what they think is true so just kind of adding nuance to that because even with something with the waggle dance that's what researchers have found to be consistent in bees we don't speak bees so we can't really know what the waggle dance is all accomplishing but there is some stuff that you can kind of deduced from doing research so i don't know ex- what point i was trying to make with the power poses but i just no. i just needed to cook on that <laughs>
1: Nah, I get what you're saying because the first thing that it made me think of is, like, the rituals that basketball players be doing before Mm -hmm. the game that have no – like, I can't say that LeBron doing the chalk does anything from his basketball ability. Like, it doesn't help LeBron play better. It doesn't help Steph Curry to play better by running into the little basketball goal. It don't help uh, Michael Jordan to play better to stick his tongue out. You know, it was just – it just something they they always did i think uh somebody else uh, like marshawn lynch with the skittles the skittles mm-hmm. didn't make him run <laughs> run through people's face and step in their chest <laughs> he ran them over like the skittles wasn't doing that but psychologically i think that's a lot of things um i think um uh, when it comes to neurodiversity and what does um what does normal mean i always like caution again with normal equating to correct Mm -hmm. because i don't think that's the case i think everyone can determine what's your normal and that's what you should rock and do because some folks that are um like i guess non-neurotypical i guess even neurotypical is kind of i I still feel like that's a fishy word too typical yeah like too me It's a fishy word because if I look, if I was to line up my family members as and I had to pick out who was neurotypical, I would have a hard time deciding. (laughs) Because what does that even? Because what does that even mean? Like, does that mean that you can pay bills and pay taxes and pay for a car note and pay for rent every month? If that means that you're typical Uh, because i feel like a lot of that stuff is just wrapped up in that but i think like there just needs to be more diversity of just allowing the difference and being like because i think black people as a whole do that really well like you know if there's a family member that just don't mess with people and like eating by themselves or they like doing something by
0: themselves then
1: leave that boy alone. leave leave them alone They, they doing what they need to do you need to worry about yourself
0: they ain't doing nothing to you all up in their business all up in their business right and then
1: if it's somebody that um like really gets upset about certain things going on at their house or like i don't know like i don't know like putting spoons in the sink and not washing. i don't know so people have their little things right and it's like accepted normal that when you go to another black person's house, you are in their sanctum of, of their weird decisions that they go by because that's keeping them sane. And I think that's those, that's those things about power poses and like the like the real part is in the fact that like, yo, there's a lot of people where yes, this placebo, this is placebo. But if you need this placebo, because I think it's it's like in football too, where like Brian Dawkins, uh, if y'all don't know, Brian Dawkins was a safety for the Philadelphia Eagles, um, he embodied Wolverine before he would crawl on the floor, on the ground, (laughs) and embodied Wolverine before every game, and is is hitting himself in the helmet with his hand, like. He's getting himself to be a Wolverine on the, on the football field. And if you saw Brian Dawkins play, he played as if he was Wolverine without the claws on the football field. There is no, oh, if Brian Dawkins didn't come out and crawl on the field, would he still be a, a, all pro safety? Like, I don't know. But I know that it's, it's probably more of the fact that he's expressing himself.
0: Yeah expressing yourself and getting yourself in the headspace that you want to be in to operate
1: yeah and i think that's where the truth is but like i stand like a white man and that makes me powerful Eh, uh, that's, that's, that's where i'm not really rocking with it but i think definitely when it comes to how we all have our things that we need to do to hype ourselves up to do something for me it's usually a deep breath i gotta hit i gotta hit one of those ah, <sighs> all right let's do it and then i'll do it but everybody don't need that but i think that's where that typical and normal just needs to get a little more nuanced in. like you're saying not having to be just this or that there's a lot more in between that that i think we need to live in more
0: exactly and that's a good transition to kind of talk about A few things, I don't really have one umbrella thing to put this in, but cognitive artifacts, cognitive spaces, cognitive reach. Um, This section, I kind of want to just talk about just the fact that as much as we people say like stuff is not that deep, like things have meaning, words have meaning, objects have meaning, everything in life has meaning. And I think that's kind of why I really enjoyed a lot of my classes in CogSide because we're literally talking about how the brain processes a lot of these things and just how much information that important information that even objects can contain. So uh, the first kind of conversation piece about cognitive artifacts, and essentially a cognitive artifact, I don't have the exact definition in front of me, but it's any object thing that holds some type of informational meaning. So uh, that could be like the story of how it's made, the knowledge that it may contain, how it helps influence your thinking. And can be something as complex as the invention of the wheel like that's that the invention of the wheel took a lot of thinking, It took certain tasks I need to accomplish and it's serving a purpose for a specific goal, but also something like a shopping list like when you're about to go to the store if you go to the store and just kind of like, if you do a free run through target, you're going to end up in a lot of different aisles because your brain is trying to take in and think about a lot of the processes that you need to do in order to get what you need, you went to target for. But if you have a list that serves as a cognitive artifact, because at a specific point in your past, you wrote down the items on this list in preparation for going to the store. So that list becomes an artifact and that has meaning you needed to get these seven items on this list. And one key aspect of the cognitive artifact is that it's information that can be retrieved so if you're at the store you pull out the list you see that number one on the list is laundry detergent that's you essentially when people be like oh like shout out to my past self looking out for my present self that's what cognitive artifacts do like you setting up some future you or some future other person to be able to maximize the information from that artifact which is why i think it's really cool to hear about like what things people find important or what items in their house are really important to them just because there's so much more information in different items depending on who's holding it like for example and this is kind of just freestyling but i have this obsidian piece that someone gifted to me and for some people it's just a rock for some people it's a black rock for me it's like symbolic of a lot it's obsidian is a protective stone those of y'all who know i'm a poet i have a book called obsidian so that obsidian stone means a lot more to me specifically than it would for you but even as my friend it holds additional meaning to you because you know more about me so uh just kind of yeah cognitive artifacts what are your thoughts are there any cognitive artifacts in your viewpoint or things that you hold symbolic significance for
1: yeah like so I think the first thing it made me think of is how this is another thing that's been cheapened. And cheapened is a specific word, like made to not be as important. And it's like taking pictures. Bro, when they first came out with cameras, it used to take people like
0: an hour and took some time to get,
1: to get one blurry ass picture. But they were like, fucking let's rock.
0: Yeah, you don't even know what the picture looked like for you. You don't minute. even
1: know what it looked like you know, for a minute, and for me, like in my grandma house, she had, um, pictures of her, uh, her grandparents in pictures, and they were, um, I think from my grandma's maternal side, and Her grandma was in the picture, and then, like, wait, her. Well, my grandma's grandma's in the picture, and then my grandma's grandma was in the picture. Well, my great grandma's grandma's in the picture. And um, they're 100% Blackfoot Indian. And it's a picture that's been in my house, my grandma's house, as long as I've grown up. And it just showed me the power of this like again taking that picture for evidence sake who is in this picture Mm -hmm. why do we have it because without that picture i don't think we would know what they look like and on that very simple level of knowing what someone looks like to see a lineage is a very important picture and that's why there's hieroglyphics that's why there's cave paintings that's why there's all of these different things it's an important part of human nature to want to connect to the past and connect to what was before you in order to inform your future. And so, I think that's one of the biggest cognitive facts that's been cheapened today, because now, oh, everybody got a phone, but now don't nobody wanna take no pictures when we together. And it's just weird, it's weird to me. I'm the main one, like, yo, let's take a picture. I don't think we all gonna get together again like this. It won't be this group of people, even if we do let's take some pictures. No, we don't got to post it on the gram. No, this don't got to get posted online. I just want to take the picture just to, hey, we all kicked it this day. Y'all remember this day where we kicked it? That's why I like taking pictures. But it's been something that I recognize that I have to be a lot more forward about than I did like when I was a kid because with the disposable cameras and then the cameras that it was separate, it was almost like oh, so you're not, I have a camera. You know what I'm saying? That's what people would say at a party or a family function. Like, oh, I got a camera. We got to take some pictures. And then you just, you grab random cousin that was right here. Random cousin that was right here. Family pig. All right. All right. Good picture, y'all and then at the end of that one cookout it's hundreds of pictures mm-hmm. of people in moments where they was all like, oh we was playing cards right there or, oh you they dropped the wings or all of these moments and memories of connectedness are remembered through that artifact and i think it's just been something that's just lives in people's photo album on their phone but yep. It's not in the way of because now it's just an all star reel of just like oh how can I show my highlight tape my best pictures of myself um, my best moments uh, my best angles uh, my best outfits um, I can't I it can't even be a picture of me laughing too hard or something with my teeth showing because I don't like that but I think that's limited the amount of memories that come from mm-hmm. because honestly like what does a selfie tell me not much but if you if somebody taking pictures of you and you know y'all eating food oh dang we, remember we both got them burgers and we throw barbecue on it for the first time that's that's now a memory that you can share with people and i think that's how my family passed down knowledge is through the photo album that my grandma had like they show uncle so-and-so he there, here's his kids They're about 20 now, but this is what they look like as kids. So then maybe if you met them, oh, I remember seeing you in the photo album, Mm -hmm. your family. And I just think that's a really big missing part of the artifacts piece. And then I'm gonna say one more thing because it definitely relates to it. So my grandma, she decided to interview my great-grandpa one day um, in the 90s, and she recorded it on audio on a cassette tape. And um I used the cassette tape because I know my grandma had it and I listened to the cassette tape of the interview my grandma was asking what was it like in the great depression what was it like growing up um in the south what was it like um like having to be in the war and being black in the war and what what did racism look like when he was over there? And he had all of these profound answers to the questions. He was like, oh no, we was back there You try that racist stuff you want to. You'll be be back home very shortly because there were just little things like that where like they had those experiences that they were able to pick up on. And then as she's interviewing them, um, I'm listening to the tape. There's like a little baby in the background and then, oh, wow. like, kind of, like, kind of making fuss and making noise. And My grandma, she's like, Andre, settle down now. <laughs> and I just take the earphones off. I'm like, because <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Because I'm, I'm using this as a portion of my uh, ethnographic research for McNair. Yeah. And to be in that moment of, like, Dang! Like I was there when this interview was happening, but now yeah. I'm here in this context, listening like, to it, listening to it. Oh, that's, that's wild. <laughs> that was some deep stuff. And so when you talking about just like cognitive artifacts and like spaces and importance of places, smells and colors, I think that's an aspect to my upbringing that was so key because we yeah. didn't have nothing else. There was nothing else. <laughs> You had that and that was your way to learn. And I think that was something that I'll always cherish um, and look and just be really cognitive of going forward of just like, I want to take a picture. Like when we went, we went, uh, I think it was one of the first times we went to lunch together since the pandemic started and I was like, bro, we got to get a pic. Like we ain't got no pics. Like, and it's just something that's just stayed with me. And I didn't realize that it was with me since I I was like a toddler, basically. And then my great grandpa was there too. And he passed away when I was like six or seven. So, like the fact that I was, you know, interacting with him, I don't know what I was doing, but I was just interacting with the history as it was being told is just, it's I don't know. Lot. It's a lot of exceptions in there. But
0: yeah, I love that. Um, it's funny because this isn't the first time you've gone on wax talking about your love for pictures because I did that Black at UCSD documentary and that was one of the main things you mentioned was your love for pictures and capturing moments and those are our cognitive artifacts um cognitive artifacts I want to touch on memory palaces really quick because I know we've already been talking a little long but I think this is something it's probably the coolest thing I learned in undergrad honestly Um, because I wrote on here an importance of places smells and colors because when your brain is encoding memories the more the way the brain works like there's this phrase called like neurons that wire together fire together because there's so many different neurons which are the cells in the brain that are taking in information at any given time and all of that information is contributing to whether or not a group of neurons fire or activate uh, which means that all this information is coming in that leads to your brain thinking a thought. So when it comes to memories, you have what's actually happening, you have where you are, there's cells in your brain that are encoding exactly where you are in space. Uh, there's cells from your nasal cavity that are encoding like the smells you're smelling, there's auditory canal, like stuff that's you're hearing, colors that you're seeing, All of these things fire up our memories, which is why each of us have very distinctive relationships with different smells, different colors. Like if you were to smell some lavender right now, that would take you back to a place or a time or multiple places or times. If you smell some incense burning, that's going to take you back to some specific place. If you see Carolina blue, that's going to mean something different for you than it would mean for another person. All these different things play a role in how our memories are encoded and our brain's ability to retrieve those memories. And so, and I forget which class it was, but they were talking about memory palaces as a tool for effectively remembering lists of items or just any type of list of things. So what a memory palace is, is it's a place that you've been to. So you think of like a childhood home or a house you lived for a long time, anywhere that you have like back of your hand knowledge of, like you know where the stove's at, you know where the bed's at. And so mentally what they have you do is imagine that you're at the front door of whatever place this is and just take notes of like, big pieces of furniture, big objects. So like in my living room right now, if this were to be my memory palace, I know my TV is right here. The couch is right here. I turn the corner. I'm in the bedroom. The bed's right there. Turn another corner. My closet's right there. The fridge is right there. And what you do is you place whatever you're trying to remember onto objects in that room. So let's say you were trying to remember a list of um, animals that you want to go see at the zoo you encode like a dog, or I guess a dog wouldn't be at the zoo, but a cheetah on your TV, a lion on the couch. Uh, panda on your bed and when you're trying to retrieve those memories because it's a place that you know if you practice the memory palace enough you're going to visual or mentally be walking through that house and it's like okay when i enter the house on the rights the tv what's on the tv earlier you encoded a cheetah onto that tv so it's easier for you to remember that cheetah what's next in the room the couch what did i put on the couch the lion what's in the bedroom the panda so just wanted to share that because it's a cool little memory technique and I think for people that struggle to remember things or just want to I don't know I used to like brain games and stuff when I was growing up and I think it's very cool that you can kind of spark memories in your brain or spark the ability to remember certain things if you really start to stop and think about what those memories are encoded on and one last thing I'll say about this maybe studying cognitive science made me a better person at remembering stuff too because i have a really good memory and i think it's because i've thought so much about how we remember stuff and had to be tested on that shit so like i literally remember
1: you had to remember
0: remembering exactly so i when i when stuff happens i really be remembering and i think that's also why time is so important to me because i really be knowing like what time this thing is happening so like all that's encoded in memory but i don't know what's your thoughts on memory palaces before you get into the last part
1: the, the thing that i first thought of is like when i lose something and, and like the act of retracing my steps it's it's literally what you talked about like okay i walked in the room i went to the left and then oh i tripped and then i started tying my shoe because i my shoe lit and then you, you following all those steps and then wow the key is under the shoe thing because you mm-hmm. accidentally kicked it when you was trying to tie your shoe but you didn't notice that at the time so I think um it's definitely something that I think has, has I've done before but I don't think I think calling it a memory palace is definitely is something that is interesting for me because of the just many places I've lived <laughs> Right. Many places that, you know, maybe even if I didn't change schools, but I just moved houses. Like, so I think it's something that's really challenging for me sometimes because I'm trying to, like, be in multiple Mm -hmm. houses of memory and then trying to also match that up with the time period instead of it usually being like, because one of the only places that's been foundational is my grandma's house, like, my whole life. And so outside of that, there isn't really another place that I have true long-term memories of, really. And so that's kind of like a foundation of where a lot of my kind of core memories and why I always go back home and why yeah. I go home and I go see my grandma because it's like a part of restorative nature to me and why I think, uh, when we lose people that pass away or, or pass on, um, it's challenging to breathe through it because it's like a door closed on like a palace in a way. It's not just yeah. like they're not there no more, but it's like wherever they did live it's just not gonna be that no more. Because now that painting that was on that wall, somebody moved it now, or they the couch that they had, they got rid of that couch and it's a new couch, or they painted the walls a different color or a whole new family lives there now. So like, I think that's something that makes it challenging for me, but it's something I definitely relate to.
0: Yeah. And that's real. And I think the, like the grieving process that really comes into play when it comes to the different areas of your brain that fire, when you're thinking of different things and memories, Uh, because if you're used to being at a certain house with certain people there, The absence of that person takes away from some of the memories or it makes makes you feel weird because your brain is trying to fill in gaps. Um, Even like going to UCSD and like the people that aren't at UCSD anymore is just like, ah, like this feel a little bit different. And it's literally your brain processing it because your hippocampus, which is the area that is part of the memory processing. And the reason I remember this is because my teacher said that you'll never forget when you saw that hippo on campus. So that's how you always know what the hippocampus has to do with memories. Um, But it literally has place cells that fire specifically when you're at specific locations. So if you're at a specific person's house, Those play cells are firing because you're at the house, which might cause other memories to fire in your brain. And if you're not getting that same stimuli from that person's absence or from that picture being moved, it all plays a role in how we think. And just going back to why I wanted to talk about like just how we think, I think it's important to give language to some of these things because I feel like this can prevent people from getting gaslit a lot too when it's like, nah, like this is literally a cognitive function for my brain to think this way. It's not like me making something up where i'm not just overthinking something like sometimes things do be that deep and i think that's the theme of this episode things do be that deep sometimes things do be that
1: deep for real because i think as long as like because this is what i always tell people if it didn't come to your mind then it wouldn't be relevant yeah no matter how small it is the fact that something small came to your mind out of the millions and millions and millions of information that we take in each day, like just now I was walking on the sidewalk and I saw hella dog shit that people didn't pick up. But I don't give a damn about that in three days, but I might remember something small like, oh, did I forget to say thank you to someone? Like, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But that's, that's because if it didn't come to our mind, then it wouldn't be important. It wouldn't, and I, I always try to make sure, even when I work with students or I work with anybody, like, especially if it's small, what can I do? Cause it's small. So if it's small, what can be done to you know, help that out? Versus like kind of minimizing the small things as like, oh, well, it's not that deep. There's more serious things going on. Yes. Like, I, I can't stand Captain Obvious-ass people like that. Like, of course there's more serious things going on. And that will always happen. Like, yeah. there's no end to more serious things going on, but that doesn't make something less uh, valid to give space for or uh, less important to, you know, make a priority to, you know, give space for and or, like, do something about it.
0: Yeah, I wrote a whole poem about that based off of this image I saw with like there's a dozen arrows in the back of a wolf and it, or like a grown wolf and it was still like growling I remember and there was a, there was a single arrow that killed or like and severely injured the pup so just something to think about and th- talking about thinking and thinking about thinking uh, our last topic for the day is metacognition which is thinking about thinking this is where my brain gets into the rabbit holes and. it's it's a it's honestly a blessing and a curse studying cognitive science because to understand how we think as an introverted overthinker that's too much thinking in an endless loop so i'd be lost thinking about thinking sometimes but a couple kind of rapid fire things i just wanted to discuss before we close out this episode one just a little bit of background at a very like bird's eye surface level point of view just about how the brain does a lot of processing a lot of this i've been talking about already but a few main components i want to touch on one is unconscious processing like because of just the way that our brains are set up and how much stimuli we're already exposed to there's a lot of processing that happens without us even thinking about it otherwise we would not be able to literally exist like if you could imagine your brain had to always consciously think about breathing or thinking about making your heartbeat those are all things your brain is doing but it's doing it at such a fast speed that you can't even think about them happening so those two things speed of processing unconscious processing as well as the way that our brains do a lot of guesswork because like just the millions and billions of neurons that are in our brain it is not impossible but it doesn't make efficient sense for our brain to really get the exact answer to a lot of things before uh, coming to a conclusion so sometimes if it knows that If these 10 million neurons fire together, it most likely means option A, like there's a 5% chance it might be option B. The brain is more than likely just going to guess that it's option A. And the reason I bring all of that up is I feel like we all know how, like, we all know we have thoughts and how fast people can think. But when you really break down to, like, the individual components of how we think that really shows in policy, that shows in implicit bias, that shows in accessibility, because people who aren't trained to think in inclusive ways, in diverse, equitable ways, their brains are doing guesswork that is inherently problematic because they haven't wired their brain to think a certain way. And so three areas of impact I want to discuss, starting with implicit bias. There's this test, this research experiment where they show uh, participants a series of different faces and they rate the attractiveness of the face. And most of the faces that were stereotypically more attractive and had more symmetrical features, they more symmetrical features led to more attractive ratings, as well as it led to participants trusting that person more within the experiment. Of course, the experience more level or more multilayered than that. But the, in essence, it was about attractiveness, symmetry, and trust. And just thinking about how race can play a role in that, And how, like, if you have a group of racist white people taking this test, what else are they unconsciously processing that is also leading to some of these decisions? What else aren't they considering? And I brought all this together to bring up something that's happening in our country today in Jackson, Mississippi. And they're like just disgusting water supply and the negligence by the government for that water supply. Why don't policymakers think about Jackson, Mississippi when it comes to charging? Because best believe. It, I mean, this is an extreme example, but if the water quality got anywhere marginally close to going in that direction in La Jolla, California, it will be fixed in 35 minutes. There will be money specifically dedicated to figuring that out and getting it done. But when you have a place like Jackson, Mississippi, people don't care. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Oh,
1: that wasn't rhetorical? I got, I, I, got a, I got a list for you. So just think the thinking about thinking thing, that was my first thought of just like, okay, what is unconscious processing and what are all these things and how does that come to, into socialization and how folks trying to punish each other for how they were socialized instead of the system themselves, that individualistic kind of like going after the low hanging fruit or the person that you have access to instead of the real contributors to that unconscious processing if like, you know, especially when it comes, I, I say it the most, when it comes to um, like uh, kids and toys and stuff, they watching SpongeBob on a commercial is showing them 40 million toys. So like, is it that kids only like toys or they only like video games or is it that they're being marketed to by billionaires that want mm-hmm. you to spend their money on them? I, a bunch of kids like my my little brother like loves animals he's he's had pet lizards pet frogs That ain't got nothing to do with no phone screen but ask anybody and it goes back to that uh, that part about like the, the generational schisms oh all these young people they only want to be on their phones and then and that goes kind of back into that but i think the to answer your question that it's possible because people have made it a implicit nature that suffering is what Black people do. And that's especially Black people from the South. Yep. And that's why people that are have migrated from the South try their hardest to disassociate with what being a Black person from the South is because this is a part of it. And also I would say just in general impoverished areas, because it's water apartheid, like that's what this is in Jackson, Mississippi, and it's the same as in Flint, Michigan as well like this is a water apartheid situation in the so called leader of the free world country. Um, and it, the negligence that it comes to is because people are okay with the city that's mostly black dealing with something like this. They're okay with it. Because the first thing I thought of when you brought this up was Okay, that cathedral, the Notre Dame cathedral that was burning down, they got like I think some like two somewhere around two billion dollars in donations within weeks for a building. Now I am not here to start the train of trying to decipher through religion right now. We're maybe just for another podcast. However a building getting billions of dollars in donations versus the water supply for 200,000 people is a very interesting choice. Amongst other interesting choices of sending billions of dollars of aid to a white country while people don't have water in your country and then telling said people we ain't got the money for that
0: yeah it's there's so much to it
1: it's a lot to it and I think especially when you're starting to get into just the uh, like that piece about how that it's unconscious like in Kwame Torre said in order for nonviolence to work your your enemy has to have a conscience and the united states has none and i just think that's something that's that kind of goes with with what's being said here for sure
0: yeah i think you nailed it i that's why i wanted to bring this all together because i mean did i like really segue the hell out of attractiveness and symmetry all the way to jackson mississippi yeah but it's important to think about like it's important to understand where implicit bias comes in, in the brain and how much of it is unconscious to the point where when people are like, Oh, how could they neglect? So-and-so like, yeah, like they not thinking about it. That's exactly why they don't give a damn. Like that's that's the core of it. And I think that's where it's really important to think about thinking because you talk about poly, we talked about poly last episode and some of the structures, some of the systems at play here. And then I think it's also important to think about the thoughts that go into those systems existing and that allow those systems to thrive. The second point I want to bring about with regards to impact of thinking about thinking is accessibility. Um, This is something that I feel doesn't get thought about enough. And there was this cool kind of I called it a walkability experiment, but just a way of thinking about accessibility from a design perspective that we did in class. And it was like, if you really want to stop and think about how accessible a place is or just your everyday life is, just imagine if you had to like go about your day-to-day life only walking on your knees without being able to lift your knees up, how many places would you not have access to? And just putting your brain in that realm of thinking is a way that you can see just like how someone else can see the world. And that's also another way for you to think about like what like from a child's perspective, like if you lower yourself in height to like the height of like a five-year-old or a six-year-old, how are they seeing the world? What are they running into? What do they have access to? There's so much thinking that goes into design that I'd have to say for another podcast, but being able to really, and this goes to the next point too, about empathy, not only like seeing, like putting on someone's shoes, but like putting on the way that they think. I wrote down here, putting on someone's shoes versus someone's brain. Like where they stand and walk versus their perspective and all the thought that goes into it. Because I think it's very easy to see like, oh, well, Andres from North Carolina, he thinks this way, but it's like, nah, like there's a lot more that goes into like your lived experiences and just where you are and where you stand, but really being intentional about thinking about people's perspectives and their lived experiences across time location and how all that played a role into where they are today. So that's taking into account the cognitive artifacts, the social cognition, shared knowledge, all that we've talked about, excuse me, talked about in this episode. And then kind of just leaving you with this last question that I want your thoughts on before we close out. But how do we leverage distributed cognition to change the way we think? Like thinking about people's thought process, thinking about all that goes into people's thoughts, thinking about the symbolic significance of everything that we interact with or interact with on a day-to-day how do we leverage some of this information to just change the way we think
1: i think it's deciding like something that i think would go a long way is if folks decided to change their habits change what their goals might be shift their goals to fit the outcomes that they want so like When it comes to changing the way we think and and emphasis on the we i think it starts with ourselves changing how i think but also you know being the change that we want to see so like especially you know with humans they always call it peer pressure but i think there is a deeper layer to it of how that's being a way that we survive and connect with each other like you know don't succumb to peer pressure it's kind of like don't succumb to your human nature because there is some things that it was good that i was peer pressured into doing like going to caps going to psychological sort of services you know what i'm saying uh getting mental health care and not having that stigma of asking for help seeing a bunch of other people ask for help and seeing them do it and see their life turn out better um And I think that's how we leverage that distributed cognition because um, unless we change those habits of where they're coming from, it's going to always lead us into the same results. And so like, I, I see it a lot more now, but it's a lot of people that are complaining that holidays aren't the same. And it's like, like, oh, nobody on the grill. <laughs> Why ain't you on the grill? Nobody doing this, this or this for uh, like they don't feel the same to do this, this or this. Why ain't you doing it? Yeah, because people need to see that and will maybe be willing to follow. And I think that's something that I've been looking at and reflecting on myself is the thing that I'm good at is being the catalyst or the source point of something to spark off. Like. I'm good at being that initiating piece. Um, And so I've just been reflecting, like, how have I leveraged that for the collective good or for the distributed cognition of everybody around me? And so that's something that I've just been leaning into a lot more, especially with starting with something like this podcast, because we're literally doing it (laughs) because people have a chance to learn what we learn, but have a conversation about what we talked about but it's not in the form of these like hypothetical, as terrible as setups of oh, if it's your mama and your wife and your baby and y'all getting in a car, who's sitting in the front seat? is Is it your mom? Is it the what? Yo what? <laughs> all the same answer to all of those scenarios is. What's best and healthy for all parties involved? That is the answer. There can be no other answer because there is no correct answer. But I think too much of our dialogue is framed in those hypotheticals that we don't be talking about the real shit that's actually happening. How come whenever we trying to set this up or this up, um, like maybe you like folks bow out at the end or, oh, I don't want to go no more. Or how come whenever somebody's trying to do something, they're trying to start a business, they're trying to do something positive or progressive, why is it harder to get that support versus when you know something super negative is happening? And I mm-hmm. say, well, my family, like, why do we only come together around funerals? Like, mm-hmm. Why don't we do something good and spend a bunch of money and do something positive and something, something cool? You know what I'm saying? And I think that's where that starts from.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, just to offer my two cents before we transition to cool beans, I think that the most important way that we can leverage distributed cognition and leverage each other's shared knowledges, perspectives, and experiences is by just getting to know each other like and really be intentional about listening. Like, that's why one of my favorite questions to ask people like what's like one of their favorite movies they've seen recently like why is that because you can learn so much about their thought process by how they're thinking about the movie they've seen or where they relate to a character or what songs they're listening to what when you start to really unpack what people are saying and make connections as you get to know them over time i think it just unlocks a lot of different levels to their friendship and to who they are as a person, because you're not only learning about who they are, but you're learning about how they became who they are and where they wanna go. And all of that is really surrounded by just cognition, like who taught them what they know, where did they go to seek additional knowledge? And that creates these cognitive environments, or I think my professor was called like the cognitoscope of like all these different things that are contributing to our thought patterns, contributing to who we are. And I, th- I just think it's a beautiful thing to really explore human thought and why people think the way they do, because no matter what the topic is, no two people are going to have the exact same perspective or relationship with that topic. And so just, um, yeah, maximizing that time, maximizing those moments and getting to know each other. That's, that's how I feel like we leverage it. So to close this out, cool being segment as always. Uh, This time, I wanted to give a special shout-out to my big bro. Uh, You can follow him on Instagram at Designer. That's P-H-A-M-E-D-A-D-E-S-I-G-N-E-R. My brother is, like, really the jack of all trades. Like, he really be out here just trying his best to support Black people specifically in whatever way he can, leveraging the knowledge that he has earned and learned and gained throughout his lived experiences. And his latest endeavor is like designing logos for people, t-shirts, banners for websites. Realistically, if you hit him up at Fame the Designer and want him to design, he'll figure out how to design whatever you want, whether it's a t-shirt, a cap, whatever it might be. And what I really appreciate is that he really is not doing this just to make money. Like he wants to support people's businesses, uh, support their creative endeavors because some people have the ideas, but maybe they don't have the logo to get them started or maybe they're just missing mm-hmm a design of a business card to get them started so if you're a black business or any business for that matter trying to get your foot off the ground looking for a logo looking for a t-shirt hit up fame um he's he's for the people man i can't i can't express that enough and y'all think i be thinking i can't wait to get him on this podcast because he be thinking about thinking about thinking
1: (laughs) for sure definitely gotta get fame i feel like man just and the designs are dope the t-shirts are dope by the way like you know, I think sometimes, you know, people be just having T-shirts, that is not what's going on here. Whereas Real Town City got a bunch of logos, got a bunch of skills, um, designed some prototypes for me. Uh, I'm still looking through a couple of them for my endeavors, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, definitely hit them up, for real.
0: Yep. And just want to thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Natural Nonsense Podcast. Uh, hopefully y'all learn something i don't know sometimes I'll be feel like i just be talking and i like i hope, y- hope y'all picking up what i'm putting down but regardless i know andre was taking notes. i know i'm having a good time and that's really all that matter um he got the notepad i'm sure we'll have plenty of conversations about this later too uh but just encouraging y'all to follow us on social media at nat nonsense pod uh leave us a voice message on something you learned leave us a voice message on what and what you want to kick it with for a day uh or just talk about a cognitive artifact that's near you right now like i just want to get to know the listeners a little bit engage with y'all comment on some stuff share some stuff like some stuff leave us a five-star rating if you're feeling real froggy you can send us a tip a monetary tip I'm, hey I'm just i'm just a guy throwing it out there we talked about cox i ain't talked about my master's degree yet <laughs>
1: <laughs> nah you got that one that that master's degree is all over this for sure for sure yeah But yeah, like definitely like find those ways that you leverage your distributive cognition and how to interact with yourself. And, you know, I kind of talked about it from a family sense, but even with your friends or even at work, however it shows up, like and and own that, own that you have control and that you have agency.
0: Words of wisdom to live by. Uh, Don't stop thinking, y'all. Thank y'all for tuning in.